In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. Today is the second Sunday of Lent, so we continue in this season of our progress towards Jerusalem and the cross as we walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we're going to experience the joy of Easter, we have to experience the depth of sorrow of Good Friday. And if we're truly going to embrace the uh, sorrow of Good Friday, we have to participate, as the church calls us, into this season of self-examination and repentance. If we're really going to feel the weight of those sins lifted off of us, we have to first in examination feel the weight of those sins and turn to the Lord. And so as we do that, we look to see how it is that the Lord has walked through salvation history and as he has called us over and over again to lives of holiness and repentance. And we see this uh, progress, this spiraling of salvation history and time as the Lord tells his people again and again. We're here uh, reading from Genesis chapter 15 as the Lord calls Abram, but this is not the first time he's called him. At the beginning of chapter 12, he calls him out of Ur the Chaldees and he sends him to Haran. And then he takes him out of Haran and brings Abram and his nephew Lot down into the promised land. You'll remember that once they get to the promised land, they decide to separate themselves. And uh, Lot goes down into that low valley by the salt sea, and Abram goes up into the hill country. And then after they've separated and uh, Lot is living in that city of Sodom, there is an attack on the city, and uh, they're taken over. The people of Sodom are taken into captivity along with all their animals and possessions, and Abram hears about it. Remember that Abram is not this lonely, poor traveler. He's a prince, and he gathers his own army, people from his own house. He leads them down to the Valley of the Salt Sea, and he fights to deliver Lot and the people of Sodom out of the hands of their enemies. Once they're free, the king of Sodom wants to give Abram some prize. He wants to give him some prize money or a token of thanks. And Abram refuses that temptation. He says that uh, he would not allow anyone to say that this man or that man had made Abram rich, but that everything he has comes from God. And as soon as he rejects that temptation of Sodom, you'll remember that Melchizedek, uh, this priest from the city of Salem, the city of peace, comes to him. And uh, Abram gives him a sacrifice of a tenth of all that he has. And Melchizedek offers him bread and wine. That is the body and blood. And after these things, we read the morning passage today in chapter 15. So... Abram's rejection of Sodom and the enticement of that reward, his worship of the Lord with the priest Melchizedek, and his righteous obedience to God are the backdrop for, as we read, after these things. So it's after those actions that the word of the Lord appears to Abram. And we don't want to just gloss over that. When we hear the word of the Lord comes to Abram, we are reading about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the second person of the Trinity who is coming in a vision and appearing to Abram. Christ says so himself. He says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. 
We know that this is a vision. He is seeing the second person of the Trinity before his incarnation and that he's appearing. And Abram confirms this. When the word of the Lord comes, he says, My Lord, right? O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. So this is a response, a remembrance of that promise that the Lord had made. And the Lord is going to offer in covenant, in covenant promise, three things to Abram. The first is that he's going to be his shield. That he's going to provide everything to Abram. And we see that Abram has participated in this promise by only taking those things from the Lord. He's not going to take protection. He's not going to take riches or power from anybody but from the Lord. So the Lord is going to be his shield. The second thing that he promises is he promises the land. He's going to give him the promised land. He's going to give him all this, uh, this uh, land that he uh, outlines, even though it's inhabited by others. And then the third thing is he's going to give him a line. He's going to give him a son. And out of this line is going to come the salvation of the world. And of course, this does happen as uh, from his line comes Jesus who does save the whole world. And it's in our participation through Jesus that we come to participate in the line of Abraham and become uh, children of Abraham through faith. That is our response in obedience to God, just as Abraham responds. So Abraham asks him, how am I going to know? How am I going to know that these things will happen? And uh, it's a really important point to make that, uh, you know, that, that Abraham isn't just hearing this, even though he gets this vision of the Lord, he still is struggling to understand. And this is very important because some of us think, oh, if I just had a grand vision, then I would just be content and believe. If I had this wonderful, you know, spiritual experience, everything would be fine. Well, Abram receives this vision of the Lord. The Lord comes to him and he's still asking, right? How am I going to believe? And sometimes we think the belief is going to be this idea that we're just going to have this fixed mind, this mind that doesn't wander, this mind that doesn't question and doubt. And that's not the human experience, right? The human experience is to question and to doubt. The question is, what do we do with that doubt? Do we take it to the Lord and allow him to confirm and strengthen us or do we move away from him in doubt and so abram moves towards the lord right he 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 asks the lord and he's in conversation with him and the lord shows him uh, exactly what it is that he's going to do the response of the lord is go and offer this sacrifice uh, which is again that call to respond to the lord in obedience again sometimes when we ask something of the lord we want him to just do something or show us something not to give us more homework right more tasks to do but that's exactly what the lord does to abram he says go and prepare this sacrifice this sacrifice is a sign of covenant and it's a, a very common act in the the ancient near east that there would be uh, when a covenant was made a sacrifice that would be divided into two parts to represent the one side and the other of the covenant and so he's participating in this practice of, of covenant with the lord and then we read about this fire that's brought between these two halves of the sacrifice this is for those of you that like a little fire brimstone and you're preaching here it is fire and brimstone right and these great censers going between uh and now we come to understand with this judgment that this isn't the lord and abram this is Abram and his descendants and the Amorites, and the Lord is going to judge between them. And this all happens in this dreadful and great darkness that befalls on Abram. Again, not always what we're asking for, right? Lord, allow a dreadful darkness to come over me, 
right? So that I might hear you and that I might tremble before you, uh, that I might know your will. And then again, that promise, we want those promises that we're asking for the Lord to come right away, right? We want to see them. We want to experience them. And the promise that the Lord then makes to Abram is a 400-year promise. And the 400 years is going to be of suffering, Right At the end of that, how is Abram going to experience this as a promise? These people that I give you, this family that I give you, are going to go and suffer in slavery for 400 years. You'd have to think that Abram at the end of that would say, where is the promise in that? Right, And that he's going to bring them out finally and that he's going to uh, wait for the iniquity of the Amorites to be fully formed because he is judging between them. So then we have this fear and trembling of Abraham. We have this fear and trembling of the great judgment of the Lord between himself and the Amorites. And the question for Abram, the question for us is, how do I maintain uh, to be on the right side of God's judgment? How will I be able to see that fire and smoke and be secure in the Lord? And this is the question that's answered in Luke chapter 13, although it's not how it's asked. They're asking this question that many want to know, will many people be saved, right? Is salvation for lots of people? And of course, as we see over and over again, Jesus answers the question they should have asked. The question isn't, will many be saved? The question should be, how? How can I be saved, right? How now shall we live? And the answer is always repent and be baptized. Jesus' response here is strive. This is the striving of repentance, the striving of of giving up and, and giving away, of letting go of all those things that would keep us from being able to walk through the narrow door. The narrow door is a very interesting figure that Jesus uses here. And it's right before this, uh, this metaphor he uses, this parable of the householder. If you know the, the ancient Near East and their architecture, uh, a village house, a simple, modest village house would have a very small, narrow door off of the main street. This isn't the door of a, of a palace. This isn't the door of a rich man. This is the door of a simple uh, villager. And if you've ever been uh, to a place that's, that's older than, than Las Vegas, if you've ever been to a small uh, village around the world and you see the doors of a small village house, they are low and they are narrow. And uh, in my experience, when you go through those doors, you know, you have to step way down and duck your head, right, to get under that, under that lintel. And this is the image that the Lord is giving to us, this image of ducking down low and squeezing in through the narrow door. You can't have your, your hands full of bags and you can't enter in as a grand person. You have to give up your grandeur. You have to give up all those things that you're carrying. You have to let go of anything that might be weighing you down because to get in, you're going to have to humble your yourself and you're going to have to let go all those things that might keep you from entering in and so that's the first image that we need to hold on to that we are entering into the kingdom of god with humility by lowering ourselves by letting go of anything that we think might give us some credential that might give us some fame or glory we have to let all those things go and then we get this wonderful image of this householder Jesus uses this image of the householder over and over again. Sometimes he's a king with a grand palace when that's the message that he's trying to use. Say the the banqueting marriage feast. But here it's the narrow door. It's this humble householder. And he's gotten up and he's shut the door. And then people come and they're knocking and trying to get in. And the householder says, I don't know who you are. 
How is it that he doesn't know them? They're saying, we've met you, we've eaten with you, you've been with us, we've been in in relationship with you, and he says he doesn't know them. He doesn't know them because they're working evil. So this is the the quality of knowledge of not only knowing God, but of being known by him. We are known by him when we do acts of righteousness. See, sometimes we set this really um, ridiculously low bar for coming into relationship with God. Some people say, well, do you believe in God? Well, so what if you do? Satan believes in God. His demons believe in God. What does that get them? Nothing. Uh, Some people think, oh, if I've been in conversation with God, if I've been in prayer with him, if I recognize him, what does that get them? It gets them nothing in this example of Jesus. It's not about being uh, known, right, or knowing him. It's about being known through righteousness. He says, get away from me, all you workers of iniquity, all you workers of evil. I do not know you. So now we know that it's not about us knowing God, but it's about him knowing us. That is, knowing our reputation or our way of life. Does he know us in righteousness? Does he know us in his goodness that we have when we strive and when we repent and when we enter into the life of God? And he says that those who come and participate in this feast, who come and sit at the table of God, will be Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets, while yourselves, that is, he's speaking to those who might think that because they're related to Abraham or because they share a bloodline or lineage or because they worship in the same way that he did or any of these other kinds of qualities that they think might get them in, uh, he says that it's about the way um, that you live. And that even people from the east and the west, the north and the south, who recline at table, that is, who recline at the feast of the body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then finally they come back to him and they say, you need to get away from here uh, because of Herod. And, and he, says, uh, he says, Herod is a fox that is a low-level predator, right? He's not the big predator to be worried about. He's not a lion, right? He's not Satan, who you have to protect yourself against. Herod's this little fox, and I've got work to do. What is that work? He's on his way to Jerusalem. That's how the chapter starts. He's headed towards Jerusalem, and he says, I'm going to go the first day, the second day, and then on the third day, I'm going to finish my course. So he's pointing now to his plan, his project of crucifixion and resurrection. This is what he's going to accomplish. And what is that accomplishment? What is his incarnation, his crucifixion, and his resurrection? This is his project of sacrificial love, right? Of giving love. This is what Christ is going to do. He's going to lay down his life. He's going to take his, our sins upon himself in sacrificial love. And that is the course that he has set on. That's the goal that he has in mind. And so we know that we are going to have to participate in that life of self-sacrificial love in order to be known by God and led into the kingdom. Question is, how do we do it? Because that's easier said than done, right? St. Paul in Philippians 3 tells us a little bit about how we do it. He says to be an imitator. Now, in our culture, being an imitator isn't a really popular thing to be, right? We like new, innovative people, right? That's what's popular today. But St. Paul is saying be an imitator. Being an imitator isn't being a poser, right? A poser is somebody who wants to look like they're doing what they're supposed to do. 
An imitator is somebody who is trying to do what the other person is doing. Anybody who's ever had a child knows what that looks like, right? Uh, Anybody who watches children, they watch and they try to do what the adult does, right? This is what it looks like to be an imitator. And we maybe have had the experience of finding ourselves imitating others. This happens to me all the time. I start to say things and all of a sudden I hear my father's voice coming out of my mouth, right? Because we're mimics. We're naturally mimics. The question, though, is will we choose who we're going to mimic? Are we choosing who we're imitating? And who are we choosing? St. Paul says, keep your eyes, so keep your eyes fixed on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So he's saying, I'm living a life as an example. Those who are doing what I'm doing, those who are living the lives of the apostles, are the ones you're supposed to keep your eyes fixed on. Now again, in our culture, we are tempted and and led into this life of continually watching people doing things they're not supposed to do. It's become a great industry in our culture, right? To watch people who don't do things they're supposed to do, and then we're wagging our fingers or laughing, right? This is fear pornography. Watch people who are dangerous, watch people who don't do what they're supposed to do, and we're going to be able to stand back and to say, oh, aren't they stupid and foolish? But this is not what St. Paul calls us to do. St. Paul calls us to find people who are living according to the life of God and to imitate them. So when I want to live a righteous marriage, I need to look and see people, right, who have lived a life of of good marriage, who are advanced in years, who have overcome adversity, who have maintained their chastity and fidelity. Right? If I want to know how to raise my children, I need to look at people who have raised children to be godly men and women, right? Who are working in ministry, who are serving others, right? Who have selfless lives, people who are about the business of God. And I need to look and see how have they been raising their children so that I can raise my children that way. I need to look at people's finances who are working according to God's. I need to look at people who are in business, who are working according to God's will, who have found ways to be a Christian witness in the business place and in the marketplace. And the first place that we look to that is to the saints of the kingdom of God. Look at all of the examples that we have. Some of them were married. Some of them were single. Some of them were young. Some of them are old. Some of them were scholars. Some of them couldn't read. Some of them were what we might call developmentally delayed. There is an example for all of our lives, but we have to have our eyes fixed upon them and fixed upon the goal of Christ. He had his heart set on Jerusalem. And Paul says we need to have our heart set on what? our citizenship, which is in heaven. And it is from heaven, from heaven, that we await a Savior. We're waiting not to go to some far-off heaven, but we're waiting for heaven to descend, for Christ to come again, and to bring us transformation so that we might be remade, that our lowly bodies will be like His glorious body. So that is our focus and goal, for God and his love to come and to remake us, to restore us so that our lonely bodies are like his glorious body, so that we are subject to him, so that we are standing firm in our beloved. When you have a beloved, 
You can't think about anything else. When you're in love and that way, that person is always on your mind. You're always thinking, where are they? What are they doing? What's their plan? He is our beloved and our hearts and minds are always focused upon him. So do you believe it? Do you believe that he has taken your sins? Do you believe that he has separated you from them as far as the east is from the west? Will you allow him to gather you as a hen gathers her brood under his wings? Will you accept the invitation to his table to eat his body and his blood and to be renewed in hope and faith? Will we have our minds set upon him and his promise that his kingdom will come to earth and that our joys will never end?